we are live, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Crypto Gaming Institute podcast. I am Ben, your host, and today we have the main man behind a bunch of different projects, which I'm very interested to dive into. Welcome to the show. Dude, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. Glad uh, glad we could sync up on this. Um, I want to dive into all things uh, what you're doing and all the different projects and especially esports because I'm incredibly excited about that. But first, let's level up. And we are back, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you are absolutely fired up and ready to rock. My dude, there are so many things that you're doing just by taking a peek at your Twitter. Um, clearly, esports is a big part of it, but I would just love to hand the mic over to you and really just ask, like, what exactly are you doing? What exactly are you building? What's your story? All right. So first of all, before we get into that, that was a fire-ass intro. I'm not going to lie. That was kind of fresh. Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah, that. That was that was pretty amp. That was pretty amp. So I had to acknowledge that really quickly. I have to now match it with the same energy and vigor. Uh so let's get into it. Uh yo, it's your boy Sursu. Um that's what I'm known on Twitter. Uh that's also my middle name. Well, part of it anyway, it's a shortening. Uh shout out to my pops. Um but uh so what I do is very hard to describe even for me right um but i kind of like put it in, in like this neat little very large like uh i guess uh box if you will right so like my background's in design it's an anthropology i studied uh this thing called service design back in art school like 11 years ago and uh, essentially it's this idea of creating the environment for creation co-creation between communities and facilitators um and so as a designer, you sort of act as this conduit, this sort of um, this mediator, this facilitator, this person that helps uh, uh, become the Sherpa between both one reality and another and finding a way to merge the two things together. Um, a lot of that, I didn't necessarily really get a chance to do outside of academia until I got into crypto. Um, but some of that stuff, you'll kind of find hints of that in user experience design and advertising and product design and development, so on and so forth. Anything design related normally is going to have kind of like the blending between two worlds and finding the commonalities between them to build something new. Um, so I just tried to take that same kind of um, mental modeling um, and bring it into crypto. Um, and so now uh, I'm in I'm in esports now. But when I started, I was um, pushing uh, for advocacy for artists, um, greater visibility, uh, that that's what led to the Mint Fund. I think that's like my my first big project in the space um, was finding an opportunity to say, hey, how can we help artists mint NFTs? Uh, how can we like create a, a reduce the barriers of entry uh, by making it free? Um, where, excuse me, we as the Mint Fund incur the cost uh, to help uh, artists mint and find uh, their way in navigating this environment I and mean, that went pretty well for for like in its first year um we've supported over a thousand plus artists um at least 36 different countries um one a few of our really awesome folks that have gone through our cohort uh like now ashley uh tigress lee um uh, who else um uh ikaro clavaclante um like uh who else uh linda dunia there's a lot of really awesome amazing people that have kind of gone through our program um and they're doing amazing things like now nah, actually uh they're one of like the most sought after artists right now in the space um i would say like tigress lee is pretty much kind of inventing the new paradigm between hardware fashion and crypto um 
Then you have Linda Dunya that's doing incredible strides in bringing NFTs into Africa, had the first NFT show in Senegal um, through Cyberbot and then in her community, in that community. And then uh, Akaro, uh, they pretty much put on for Brazil. We did a huge auction for them at Sotheby's uh, last year, and it has been nothing short of amazing ever since. Um, yeah, so that was my first project. I uh, quickly followed that up with um, so, uh, building, doing uh, research uh, with Wellness Culture, trying to find and create really inventive ways using the Zora protocol to like build um, narrative and storytelling uh, for artists so that when they are promoting and pitching their work, uh, there's a, uh, a better means of uh, assessing context um, and really kind of following the through line between uh, an artist and maybe all of their influences uh, that have led up and culminated into that piece. I, a lot of that is inspired by how I was taught in art history where I just, it was never really about kind of like the work per se, but it was what the work was saying um, and the context around the socio-political context around uh, these artists at the time, which end up influencing you to create art in certain ways. Uh, we all are, uh, I guess, tools of our environment, tools of, you know, folks that we're around. Um, and the way that we sort of craft things is by, uh, by proxy to all of those uh, external and even internal elements. So um, those are like my first two things that I did when I first, when I got into the space. Um, and then uh, halfway through that year, I led an initiative called Crypto Cookout um, that helped, uh, we rallied around 458 uh, folks to purchase two black CryptoPunks, helped increase the floor for CryptoPunks uh, at, that, at that time. Visa Ava bought one shortly thereafter. Um, really want to just kind of push the the, the idea of uh, multiplayer uh, mechanics in crypto, like how we can get people to kind of rally behind particular causes. Um, and then we use that same kind of energy to build Blackhand, uh, which is pretty much what I've been doing now and kind of everything that I'm all in on, um, plus Project Stadium, which is an offshoot of Blackhand, or at least the product uh, that's birthed out of it. So um yeah, bro, it's been a fun ride uh, since since the summer of 2020, honestly, and uh, I have never been more challenged in my life uh, juggling a fuck ton of projects. But honestly, it's uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. So it seems like there was always that that thread linking everything, which is to basically help publish talent or help bring talent to the world, right? Yeah, pretty much. Why was that? Why was that such a, an important thing? And how did you? How did you also get into crypto at the same time? And then when did that the realization of that intersection uh, really hit? So for me, I got into crypto early. Um, I remember being a freshman in college, and this dude was like, "Bro, get into Bitcoin, bro. It, it's the it's the wave." And I was just like. Bro, I'm like 17 and I'm focused on trying to figure out what the hell I'm gonna do with my life. I guess I'll take a Bitcoin wallet from you. Sure, no problem. I mean, dude set me up with everything. Sent me a, I mean, honestly, an ungodly amount of Bitcoin. I would I, I would probably I would be able to do all the things that I've ever wanted to do with crypto without having to ask a single dime if I actually kept up with that Bitcoin wallet. I'll just put it that way. Um because I it it was in one ear and out the other. I knew about it then, just never really fucked around with it. Um, it wasn't until I graduated, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and there was this, uh, I was um, an advisor for the Nashville Entrepreneur Center um, as a designer. I would help startups figure out like how to use uh, and leverage like user experience design um, and prototyping to gain funding. And then of course, to, you know, uh, create MVPs for products or even just find ways to say, hey, how can I like uh, reach out and recruit really talented designers and engineers um, if I kind of have like uh, uh, something that is meaty enough for them to kind of like chew into. Um, anyway, I met this dude um, who was a blue collar construction worker turned tech guy. Um, and basically he was very disgruntled with how uh, you know, folks that work in construction, you know, many of the people doing the labor, um, the contractors, so on and so forth, were being um, 
weren't being paid, um, were being paid poor wages, um, <clears throat> were being lied to about like how much pay they actually deserve or that they were supposed to get. Um, and they would lie on like the job site and say that they didn't deliver certain materials and stuff like that. So you wanted to find a trustless, permissionless way to prove that workers have been doing their job and to, to ensure that workers got paid on time. It was like the first time I actually heard about blockchain being leveraged uh, or being used um, from, from that point of view. Um, and that that's what kind of spelled true utility to me at the time. So I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. I actually want to dive into this more. Um, and that's when I you know read the white paper and certain things clicked at the time. But I was really mainly focused on how do I translate you know, um, trustlessness, permissionless, like, you know, um, uh, this sort of like a uh, transparent environment that blockchain is supposed to, supposed to yield in a experience that is like guided enough for even folks that are the least tech savvy to try to like figure out. Um, and that was a really challenging, but fun process. Uh, I, we worked together for about maybe nine months, um, helped him with his pitch deck um initial design stuff like that um they they went into into more like um physical hardware as well as software so it was a really unique kind of blend of the two things um and so i said you know what i'm gonna keep a tab on blockchain stuff um keep a tab on crypto and that was like 2016. um uh, about a year and a half later i moved to new york city i uh, worked for a startup called romeo uh, was head of design there. I, it was basically a um, an app for uh, it's like it was like TaskRabbit meets uh, Angie's List, <laughs> um, where you could literally book sort of like anybody uh, or any type of hobbyist that wanted to build something out of their career. Um, so it was like it was like super interesting to just kind of see the very nuanced differences between let's say like a tutor versus a dog walker versus a, a handy person. Right. Um, there's no one size fits all like how task rabbit kind of like does it for kind of like handy people and stuff like that. Um, there's a, it's a lot more modularity. Um, so that was already something that was super unique and in, in many ways, I didn't necessarily think about it in the context of crypto, but if we think of crypto as like this sort of uh, this public ledger where data and or at least like the um, contracts and, and NFTs that interact with them or NFTs that are contracts and, fu and funds, tokens, all these things are all sort of like uh, composable to a certain degree, then the data, your personal data um, is always with you. But the context and how the data is provided, shown, served to you, um, uh, utilized um, is where the decentralization um, from the application perspective kind of comes in. And in a way, we were, when I had approached sort of the Romeo project, I had sort of looked at it from the same context where it's like, there's so many different types of people that can interact with this. We have to make something that's a lot more modular to support it. Um, and so we had this idea where, um, I think about 0.5% of the total amount of users we had, maybe like 50,000 at one point, uh, were responsible for over 90% of most revenue that was coming in from bookings. That's a huge issue for us, right? We're like, damn, like if we got to do, like this is no way to scale if like one out of every like 5,000 people are making money, that, that's, a, that's a problem. Um, so we had this idea where we, we took a portion of our service fee that we were already collecting um, and we pulled it into a, a liquidity farm for a token that we were going to push out. And we dispersed this token sort of like in the inverse. Those who used the platform and got the most out of it got the least amount of tokens. And then those that needed a lot of assistance got uh, the largest allocation of tokens. And when we powered it with our liquid when we paired it with our uh, service fees that we had collected we had enough liquidity to kind of help uh, at least like 40 percent of most of those folks kind of like uh, take better advantage of all the tools that our app provided um, and as a result we went from 0.5 percent of folks making a profit to about 17 and a half to 22 percent over like a nine-month period which was huge right and then the ico boom 
crashes and then nobody fucks with crypto and then we had to abandon the project. But I feel like it would have been really interesting if, even if we kept it going, uh, even if the value of ETH and all that stuff was lower. Um, I think mainly because of the fact that we were actually able to boost and inspire growth um, uh, from from a tokenized perspective. Um, so wait, let me, let me hop in here for a second. Yeah. So it seems like that, that those are very interesting game mechanics. Can you maybe break down because moving from from less almost less than single digits uh, revenue generation of the 0.5 to like 17.5 percent? I mean, that's a huge on a percentage basis. That's an enormous increase there. So why do you think it worked the way it did where it seems like almost you guys were investing into the people that wanted to participate but did not quite have the ability to participate maybe you could talk a little bit more like the game theory behind that and, and how that actually helped them and and how that worked out for sure man like so the main thing that i noticed was or about most like gig economy based um uh environments is that it's all about your network, right? So if you've naturally already had a network, but now you're looking at this tool as like a easier way to facilitate and expand kind of like your reach to folks that um, may not have necessarily heard about you, um, but now there's more visibility to your already increasing brand, right? So that's why like folks that are already very good at these things, like they become power users almost instantly um, and they become sought after because folks that want Folks that build apps like these, they want to attract well-to-do folks um, because that helps give them legitimacy. But again, but the biggest problem is that saps all of the financial opportunity from everyone else. So we, I essentially had to fight for um, the opportunity to say, listen, let us go after like, you know, uh, uh, Esmeralda, who's like in like Bed-Stuy, New York City, um, and is like a really good tutor, um, but just has no, she's not really that savvy at working many of these things. But if we can give her a particular boost, if we can invest in her a little bit and, and get her going, what can she do with that, right? And all it, take, all it took was getting them one booking, right? We got them one booking. Um, they were able to provide the service well, we, we did a follow-up with the, the people that had worked with them, did kind of like an interview, like an exit interview, if you will, um, asked them to write a, you know, a testimonial, an earnest one. Um, and we were able to kind of build sort of like a little mini campaign around the city about that with like, you know, everyday folks. Um, and that's, that's something that caught on where uh, it wasn't the Glitz and Glammy people who already had massive market share um, but it was the the everyday person. And I think that that resonated with New York because New York is already hustle culture um, personified. And so I think it, it worked in that environment. I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure if it would have worked in any other city environment, to be honest with you. But I know for New York City, um, we were able to speak to the cultural notes um, very beautifully because of uh, because of that approach. Um, but I mean, but honestly, like it, you know, you you take a loss, I think, as a business sometimes in doing it in the short term but overall the idea is i we want healthy scale um if we're getting you know out of every ten thousand people you know like 2000 2200 so, so on and so forth like that are actually like really benefiting from it that's much better than you know 50 out of every ten thousand, right like the, you we don't get to we don't get a chance to eat as a business but neither does anyone else get a chance to eat either um, and it becomes sort of a dead app. So uh, we, we had to really, um, you know, I had to advocate for it. Do you think that that, so that's really interesting that it literally only took one booking and that's what almost activated these different folks who may otherwise never have been, and I'm using activation as like becoming an engaged member on the platform and actually providing services to other people. Um, do you think? Have you seen that in other areas where maybe somebody just needs like that first little push and then that really changes everything for them? Like, like, does that go above and beyond that one particular example? Uh, yeah, I would say if you look at NFT art and aggregate, 
it's not necessarily saying that like it has made everyone millionaires because it is far from the truth. But what we did see was a massive expansion of folks experimenting with the medium um, or experimenting with the technology and finding ways to showcase art um, in, a, in a uniquely different context. And that experimentation has kind of like created the ripple effect in which folks are now building platforms, protocols, and, and other advanced tooling to help facilitate these very weird and funky edge cases of how people have been interpreting NFTs um, as a form of uh, delivering art uh, to the masses. And then I also say like with MintFun, I would say like with um, Akara, like even though they had a brand in, in Brazil, being able through the the Mint Fund pipeline and just having that first auction um, with us definitely changed everything. Um, that led to the Sotheby's auction. Um, the Sotheby's auction that led to um, them creating uh, Magma DAO, which is um, one of the larger uh, Brazilian art outfits um, in the country. Um, and then they just had a, a show in Sao Paulo with um, refraction dial and they're doing a bunch of other amazing things. But I mean, but that's like the, that's, that's, that's the, the catalyst, right? Like sometimes it really just takes that one, that one spark to catch uh, or that one uh, wick to catch fire. And then now you've got something burning. Um, and, and again, it's still always up to those individuals to go further with it. Um, but sometimes all you need is the one push uh, from zero to one. And then you can kind of take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I absolutely love that. And I think we're probably going to have to see a lot more of that where yeah. it's almost like the the platform takes the bet on the individual to get that individual like fully engaged and up and running and gives them a shot to like really, truly experience it at, uh, at the level that it can be, which is to me is a very fascinating concept. Um Unless you had any other thoughts on that, um, I do want to move on and start to touch on the esports side of what you do because I think Let's that's really interesting as well. Um, how did you move from more the art side into the esports side? And what was really like the thing that caught your attention there that really made you want to go in that in that direction? I've been a gamer as long as I have can remember i i think uh i had a old star wars you know you i don't i don't know how old you are but like um it, it, that is i'm not that old myself anyway i'm not even 30 I'm, but i'm 84 okay oh great awesome so <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm just kidding so, <laughs> so in um back in like the late 90s uh they used to have like these very small you, you know like how um vinyl you have like your like your 45s and your 33s and stuff like that um mm -hmm. and so cds had the same thing they had like the regular size cd then they had the really mini cds and they had like this really interesting like star wars video game that ga it came with a joystick um i think it was like a rebel squadron vert like game on pc um and I, I was always stuck on the main, on this one level where you're trying to like blow up the Death Star. Couldn't get past it for some reason. But I mean, I think I was like maybe four or whatever. So obviously, um, but I, I was captivated by games since. Um, and so uh, once I hit maybe 11, um, I had already played and competed in chess tournaments as a kid. So I was very competitive from like a, uh, definitely like a mental competitor um and card games tcg games were like my thing um i was obsessed with pokemon so i played that i i played Yu-Gi-Oh tcg um and i would find myself at the eb games and then the gamestop here in philly competing in tournaments um and just trying to like figure out like how how i stack up with other players um so much so that i built my own sort of comp league in middle school uh <laughs> Where we had, um, we would take the library and we would, um, we would uh, have like a prize pool where we would take the some of the money that we had left over from lunch, um, and we would uh, pull it over the course of maybe like four weeks at the beginning of the school year. We would kind of like pull it all and then like right towards holiday break, we would tally how much we say how much we put up and be like, all right, this is the pot. And then between February to 
uh, to uh, to May, we're gonna like play these these series of games, and then whoever wins at the end gets like a, the like most of the sh- most of the share. Um, so we would I, we would be facilitating our own events then. Um, and I didn't necessarily know that that was gonna like lead into what I'm doing now because I never really thought about it in that context, but. It's very surreal that I was uh, organizing those types of things at that point in time. Um, I ended up moving to Florida, and then I met most of my co-founders, uh, Blackout and Roval, uh, or Chris and Alex, respectively. Um, we would be obsessed with Halo. Like we we bonded over Halo Two. We played MLG game battles constantly every weekend. Um, that was just the grind. And at that time, we were playing for bragging rights, fifty dollars, and. I don't know, maybe uh, uh, a big leaderboard placement on MLG.com, right? Um, it, it, it was definitely nothing as massive as it is now. I think the the, the, the best I'd ever gotten was Black Ops 1 had come out. I was going stupid with a FAMAS on um, on one map. Um, I think it was the uh, the launch site map. I forget what it's called, but it had like a, a, a shuttle or something in, in the middle or a missile in the middle or anything, something like that. Anyway, I got recruited by like this small group of, of kids. I forget what their team name was. They ended up going pro at some point, um, but this is when they were all semi-pro. And so I had practiced with them for maybe about six to eight months. We competed in a lot of different things. I actually did pretty well. Um, and then I ended up moving and a bunch of other stuff got into got in the way of things. But but honestly, I was like that. That was like, oh, wow. OK, this is this is this is interesting. Um, so fast forward, I go through tons of just, you know, growth, right? Like high school, college, all the stuff that I just talked about and mentioned from the crypto side, I was really doubling down on building a very expansive like career and uh, user experience design, advertising, startup culture. Like I wanted to be like one of those people. Um, and then right at the, right around 2019, I did not have any work because I quit the Romeo job. Um, and I was definitely trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I took a artist residency in Japan, uh, rekindled my love for art. And then by the time I got back, um, I, I started doing very like unique, um, projects. Like I ran a bookstore um, out of my apartment. Um, I was experimenting and building clothes, um, doing things in fashion. Um, and, uh, funny enough, a lot of that stuff prepared me for the way in which we do things at Blackhand, where, um, we have a very like curative approach to merch, a very curative approach to kind of like, uh, our branding. Um, and then of course, uh, it's very mission, mission oriented. So, um, yeah, bro. It, it was a very, it's been a very interesting journey, but like, I, I think the TLDR is that I've, I've always been interested in, in games. I've wanted to find my place in them. Um, and, uh, becoming a, uh, a community owned organization, helping to support actual pros and those that want to become pro, um, is honestly like really a dream come true. So it's, it's been super fun. Yeah, so you touched on it a little bit, but maybe you could give us um, the whatever the opposite of TLDR, the the full the full length uh, of like how did you actually go about starting the the esports organization, and how does it how does it actually function? Like like if we were getting a an intellectual tour of the actual business. Sure thing. So um, early twenty twenty started the pandemic. Uh, me and my uh, co founders we did a Twitch streaming group because we were like, yo, we should, um, we should get into it because I didn't, I, for me, especially, I didn't really have a job. I did do, I did work at Scuff for a little bit back in 2019. So that was kind of fun. Um, I think that's also kind of catalyzed the bug. And then me and my other, one of our, co- one of the co-founders, we went to London, went to a gaming bar and then said, we should do one of these. Um, oh, you left. I think what happened? Maybe he'll come back. I don't know if I should keep going. <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait. I don't know what happened here.
All right, I think I cut out for a second. Yep, last thing I heard was went to a gaming bar. Got you. Yeah, yeah, I stopped from there because I saw you disappear, and I was like, whoa. Yeah, so we went to a gaming bar in – it was in Shortage, was it? I think it was, actually. Anyway, um, and we we said to ourselves, we should do one of these. Um, We we realized that uh, there's a huge – uh, uh, there's a uh, there's no major domestic supply of tequila, at least in London, where we went. So we were like, "Oh, we got to change this. We need a tequila bar with with gaming." Anyway, um, <laughs> so we we built this we built the streaming group in 2020. Um, we built a really nice following, and all and honestly, we built a following because our branding was so fresh at the time. People were like, "Dude, who made your overlays?" And we were like, "We did." And they were like, "How'd you do that?" So that became like our way for for community bridging um, where folks just were like, yo, like their overlays are so dope. I want to know how to do that. And so they would follow us um, because uh, I provided a lot of that design knowledge. Um, Blackout and Roval provided a lot of amazing gameplay. And then uh, ATM uh, did a lot of like really unique, uh, you know, streaming between like reading manhwas or watching anime um, and then we, the four of us would kind of like collectively play games together, um, and do like a group stream type thing. Um, so that was, so that was a way for us to build an audience. Um, at the time there were a lot of folks on Twitch that were very disgruntled with how Twitch was kind of handling, um, you know, racism, sexism, and a bunch of other different stuff that was going on on platform. So people were doing, uh, uh, some boycotting. Um, and at that point we took a look and saying like, how can we sort of still support our audience? when we identify with a lot of the different issues that these folks are raising and like, we want to act in solidarity, but what can we do that's different? Um, And at the same time, I got into sort of like the new wave of NFTs uh, that summer of 2020. um, And with the work with Mint Fund um, and kind of some of the initial thought processes, because I was one of the C-Club cohorts um, at the time, I think it was the second one. Um, a lot of that early knowledge helped me kind of frame how we could take Blackhand as a streaming entity into an esports entity. Um, and we we wrote a we wrote an essay uh, last July, and then August we ran a crowdfund, and we smashed our goal 10x. We had no idea we were gonna we were gonna like raise a million dollars in 24 hours. It was kind of, I was thinking I was prepared to have a whole campaign ready for two weeks. We were only asking for maybe, I think 200 K and it was like, okay, we might take us two weeks. It might take us two months to get there, but you know what? It's fine. We're, we're going to grind it out. And folks were like, nah, we're going to full send this uh, in a day. And I was just like, this is, this is kind of unreal. Um, So (laughs) we, we quickly got to work. Um, and we said, okay, in order for this thing to work, we need to do a couple of different things. Um, first is we've got to define like what ownership means for folks that are a part of black hand, right? Like, um, and so for us, that meant, um, that community members that bought into our token or bought into our NFTs, like they have obviously like, uh, access to how we do everything, right? We're, we're building a wiki on Notion right now that literally has our entire process from start to finish, like how we started, um, all of our initial documents, our early contracts that we formed with players, um, you know, uh, how we've assessed salary, um, how we've assessed scouting um, and recruitment for players and, and other teams and uh, regions that we were looking into, uh, kind of like pros and cons. We, what we really wanted to do was to build Black Hand as an open canvas for uh, folks that wanted to be involved in esports to find their footing and and discover what they liked about the space and then contribute to it in that way um, as much as they can or as best as they can. Um, and uh, by doing by making a lot of what we do open, of course it 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 obviously like gives greater insight for other organizations too that are looking to do something like this or at least to just kind of figure out the cost of doing business to really realize like how fucking hard this shit actually is um you know it's one thing to to say yeah i'm gonna go on twitter and start a brand and go on fiverr get a logo and be like oh i'm a esports entity but it's much more involved um 
the opportunity, the opportunities for marketing and, and influence are massive, but that comes with a cost, um, a huge, steep financial cost. Um, and and I think folks are starting to realize with like Moist Critical coming out recently, talking about how he has six figure losses every month on Moist Esports, right? Helps put things in perspective. How you look at um, brands like 100 Thieves, Team Liquid, uh, TSM, so on and so forth that are operating at 15 to 20 to 30, sometimes even $40 million losses a year, right? It's not saying that they don't make rent on money, but it is saying that these businesses are not fundamentally sustainable yet um, for a lot of different reasons. And so our goal has been to try to discover how we can build a sustainable esports business and sustainable esports practice. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of like been like the, uh, that's why we believed in, in web three. And that's why we believe that the idea of sort of like an open permissionless market through our token, um, the opportunities related to NFT drops and the composability around what these NFTs can particularly represent or what other communities we can cross pollinate, um, into the idea of having some of this data open for, um, other communities to look into peer into, and find ways to build tools that might even help us or tools that help them that by proxy we're able to take full advantage of as well. Um, and then obviously um, we believe in Web3 games like Parallel, like Wildcard. Um, and our goal is to bring more players um, into this environment to discover how cool this space really is, um, even though it might be really foreign to them. Uh, I think a lot of people in the space are really only focused on like, building the games, um, but we also have to have communities that are focused on rallying and building and bridging the gap for players. Um, because obviously if we don't have a strong player base and we don't have um, games thinking about accessibility and 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 uh, and true community, then you're only gonna have these small sample set investors that are very interested in proliferating a game, but to play the game, you need to cough up a lot of money. And gamers don't have that. Um, they can earn it, um, but you need to create an equitable ecosystem in which earning is fair and just in order for them to buy into it. So those are a lot of the stuff. Those are the things that we've been interrogating um, and, and the things that, that we've been trying to put into practice for the first year. Um, I think we did a whole, whole lot. I think we did a little bit too much as, in, as far as like scaling up with a lot of the different teams we wanted to represent. Um, year two, we're taking a different approach. We're kind of like, scaling down on some of the teams that we're going to represent as black hand, but focus a lot more on project stadium, which enables us to create better reach and, and cultivate uh, the larger broad stroke of talent across all esports realms um, and provide them with a more equitable system to compete and, and prove their skill, which then helps us because obviously it becomes a moat for talent acquisition on our end. Um, but ultimately, it becomes a much more uh, transparent process for other organizations to look into. And folks will always attribute sort of black hand to the talent discovery aspect of if their team wins a world tournament. Well, if they picked them up from stadium, then that came from us. Um, and honestly, I think that that's uh, in long term a bigger flex than anything else. So if the theory is basically how to help esports become profitable at a at the risk of grossly oversimplifying it um how, what's the what's the thesis on that like i know you talked a little bit about some things but what what's really the the underlying theory behind that because these huge orgs are definitely not monetizing properly or profitably so what's the what's the strat what have y'all figured out that others just haven't um the strat is really combining the best of uh, many of the types of initiatives across the esports industry. And I'll kind of like give you a few, right? So Dota's compendium in which fans uh, purchase like these passes uh, that contribute to the prize pool and contribute to teams and so on and so forth. You can see how a major event can grow from 7 million to $47 million. But that's because there is, I mean, obviously there's scale with the fan base, um, but there's a narrative that is very easy to follow, right? Um, 
and and I think the 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 fundamental shift starts from the narrative of what you're trying to achieve and why, and then obviously after that is the tools to help support it, right? And so if our goal is to build a much more sustainable ecosystem for esports, then the tools have to kind of like complement that, right? And what we don't see is um, we don't see platforms in which uh, tournaments that are being run or held um, uh, pay out in sustainable, um, I mean, pay out in efficient and meaningful ways. So for instance, I can tell you with Blackhand right now, right? Like most of the tournament earnings that we've won um, throughout the summer, we're not going to get to the end of the year. But that's an issue, right? If you're a small org like ours or even smaller org with no funding, um, if you have an opportunity for a play for players to go overseas, for example, to to play, but they're not going to cover the cost or the cost is covered, but it's a it's in the form of a reimbursement that happens 30 days after the event, you still have to come up with the funds to make that happen. Um, and if you don't have like a, if you don't have sponsorship, which accounts for, uh, more than half of all esports rev revenue, right. Globally. Um, if you don't have media rights, right. Or strong media, social media presence and presentation, right. That accounts for another 20 or 19 or so percent, right. Then merch is not going to cover your, your cost when you're not, when you don't have the influence uh, uh, yet to sort of like move, move, uh, move pallets of clothes, right. Or pallets of gear. Um, so at, at almost every juncture teams are operating at a loss when they compete. If you have to, if it's, especially if it's a land, right. If it's online, then the cost, the bigger cost is time. Um, but if it's land, then it's time, it's money. And even if you do win, um, you still have to wait. And so if you have players that require wages or players that like, you know, um, want to do this full time and can't get their full potential because they're working for other jobs or two other jobs or whatever the case is, so that they can even afford to continue this habit. Um, what, what it does is that it, 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 it doesn't really allow for the type of unfettered opportunities to be seized by the very hungry people, right? Or, or those that really want to do this thing. Um, and for those who are more affluent and can kind of afford to take the loss, they're more than likely going to have more of the opportunities because they're the only ones that are present. Um, so think about the competitive integrity that could be, that could be added if um, payments were actually like, distributed right as the tournament ends, right? But Web3 can, can facilitate that, right? What happens when um, you want to recruit a particular player and you have the funds in your treasury that can be sort of like locked in a contract that is specific for that player so that they can drip it out on a monthly basis or weekly basis or whatever the case is. So the player never has to worry about when they're getting paid next, right? Like Web3 can facilitate that. Um, so it's really like, so I think from a, there are, two points of of attack here one is infrastructure right um and then the other is leveraging bigger support from fandom um and turning those levers to 11 right and these are things that are not new it's just the the opportunity to compose it in the web3 context because now you have trend, a transparent layer of data and you have multiple different apps that can serve these types of purposes but all the data is the same because it's yours because you own it, that changes the landscape as to how value can be distributed and where it's going and who's allowing it to kind of pass between like one community to the next. Um, and I think right now there's so much of a, of a chokehold from the league and tournament level from the publishers of these video games that currently exist that prevent um, brands and organizations from monetizing in ways that don't require sponsorship. Um, if 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 the landscape allowed for teams to develop not just cosmetic skins or but like fan support or things that are more entrenched with the game as they build up their their rank, their notoriety, for instance, their legend within this, then the the types of monetizing opportunities could be a lot more diverse. Um, and those are that's and that's you know one of the barriers where uh, 
we think Web3 can be, um, you know, can bulldoze. Um, so that's kind of really the thing. It's not like it's anything new. It's just how we're putting it together and the 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 backbone that's powering it, I think, enables us to be at least uh, uh, we have a much more successful chance at making this work than not. I'll put it that way. Okay, so it's more about just making the things people already want to do, making that easier as opposed to creating a whole new type of thing just from scratch, you know, with the with the new technology. Correct. But at the same time, I feel like there is a new there is a new medium in the form of well, now we have NFTs, we have tokens, blah blah or coins, blah blah blah. So like I could even see a world where Let's say you may be bullish on a team, but you may be even more bullish on a particular player within that team. Maybe that player has certain NFTs like part of their inner fan club where you can almost take the take the bet on them early on in their career and just kind of ride it up with them or you know something like that. However that's executed properly. But Absolutely. that could be that could be really interesting cuz like what if what if somebody had seen way early on like the Beatles and they were like man I really want to invest in that group and I want to be a part of that now that's possible but you know in the translate that to esports like they don't need to go through the individual players don't even need to go through any big uh you know whatever the equivalent of a record label is like they can have their own independent brands and the fans and can actually become investors and ride that up are is that part of part of what, what y'all are thinking about or is that on the radar for you guys of how to tap into that more absolutely so um so project stadium was sort of like the the our our vision on how we build infrastructure for esports and black hand teams are obviously going to be one of the first uh experiments that are going to be deployed on that on that app on that on our application stadium and then also that powers that helps like give us research on how we're going to build the protocol for stadium. Right. Um, and so the things that I want to experiment with are exactly that, right? Like we've got a really good apex team that is very close to um, getting a, a qualification for pro league this season. What if through, through stadium, right? Like our team, um, we have a, our team as an entity, all of our players have their own sort of like player cards that are added to this roster. And we decide to fractionalize the team ownership. And part of that ownership is given to the players. The rest of the ownership is given to us. And then we decide to sell a portion of that ownership to the general public. Right. What does that look like? Right now, now can, can we, can we create an environment in which folks who are already fans of these players whether they are folks that have been watching them on stream, right? And this is a whole new class of people who aren't necessarily really hip to crypto, but are becoming hip because they're seeing their, their really good friends supported by this crypto-based organization take it to take their career to a new height, right? So now we're getting like this type of by proxy legitimacy, uh, legitimacy that we can sort of leverage and have these players say, listen, I own the team that I play for, that I represent, right? Big paradigm shift than what most players can say about their organizations. I could probably list maybe three off the top of my head that actually own some part of the organization. That's Tim the Tapman with Complexity. Uh, I believe it's Complexity or Luminosity. No, I think it's Complexity. There's uh, uh, Faker with SKT1. And then there's one other player, I forget their name, but they own, I think a fraction of a percent of some other company, right? Like that's it. Uh, not many, not much. It's not really that, 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 that it's, Folks are trying to like figure out how to do it now, but it's 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 a new thing. Um, so that already in and of itself is is nuts, right? Where the players are like, look, like not only do I get a chance to bet on myself, um, and I have the sponsorship by this organization, but all of you guys that have supported me, you now have an opportunity to bet big on me. And by hitting this milestone of going pro, by hitting this milestone of of winning tournaments, blah blah blah, whatever, you also now get the benefit of that, and not just saying, oh, I remember when I saw one of our players names is Shuby. I remember when I saw him playing when he was like 15 and like, like it's so crazy to see him blow up. It's like, yo, I've been a fan of his forever. And like, you know, this didn't have to happen, 
but because I supported him early, like I'm walking home with a crazy bag right now. That's unreal, right? Um, so, so those are things that we're definitely actively looking to experiment with uh, pretty soon, um, where where we want to really kind of like open up the opportunities for uh, support, patronage, um, and kind of like loosely investment in the teams directly, the players themselves directly, um, and finding ways to redefine what sponsorship looks like without it necessarily needing it to be a large brand that's covering the, uh, the cost of things, but it could be, uh, the Twitch communities or the streaming communities that, uh, these players have already accrued that decide to say, you know what? We want to continue to support you on Twitch, but we're going to pull what we might've paid for the Twitch membership um, into like this. Uh, we we want to buy these tokens and stake them into the team so that as the team produces value, then we're able to collect on that, right? Like, so there's so many different like unique, and again, this goes back to multiplayer. This goes back to support um, and aggregate and sort of community building. That's always been sort of like this through line um, that I've that I've been a part of for a while. So I always want to find ways to to bring it back to that. Um, and you know, again, I think uh, it's all about the creating the right facilitation process for that to matter. Um, and so that's what we're hoping Stadium is is designed to do. Yeah, I really dig that. Uh, I think because I think that really opens up a whole new dimension, just a new dimension of fun, like. Then it yeah. becomes so much more real. I mean, I've played so many hours of video games in my life, both amateur and attempting to go professional. <laughs> and like that, just the how much people care about this stuff is bonkers. Knowing that I'm one of those people and I cared so, so fucking much, it was unbelievable. And then to know that at the same time, there were also fans and people that cared a lot about, I mean, what I was doing, what my team was doing, the tournaments that we were in, the blah, 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 blah. Like all of those people, they didn't really get rewarded for their talent. And a lot of people were really talented. Like, for example, I had this one coach named Donut. Shout out to you, Donut. And Donut was one of the smartest people that I've met. And Donut would create these spreadsheets, like get into the inner mechanics of the meta. And, you know, we're talking like the ratios of the characters. If you yeah. if you move this pixel versus that pixel, you know, what are the different dynamics there? And just so much work was put in and so many spreadsheets and numbers and calculations and just intelligence. That to me is something that is a very valuable skill because that sort of person is the sort of person that you want to reward, at least in in my opinion, is somebody that's mm -hmm. putting forth a lot of effort to really dig deep into things. That's a really contribute that that person has a higher likelihood to really contribute to society than somebody that's, you know, shit talking on on Twitter or something. As an example. I mean, you know, shit talkers have their, you know, all, all have their place and, you know, Godspeed to you if you are. But <laughs> um but you know what I'm saying? Like like somebody that's putting in that effort. But Donut did not get rewarded in a in a way that made me happy i was like damn you deserve so much more credit and actual compensation for all the work you're doing mm -hmm. i really think this could be an absolute game changer because there are a ton of unsung heroes that it's their time i mean their time is here and and this is the technology like to me that's that is one of if not the most exciting thing is seeing people get what they really deserve by being able to actually participate in things and get rewarded financially in from doing things that they actually love, which is participating in the gaming space. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm gonna just let that breathe for a second. Cause I think that's a, uh, oh, that's, that's a bar. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, well, I know that, uh, I know that we only have, um, I know that we only have a couple of minutes left here and it feels like the time I feel like we could, we could chat on this, uh, on this forever. Clearly you're passionate about it too. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, I just kind of want to open the floor and just see, um, what other 
closing thoughts you have, um, maybe maybe it would be helpful to to kind of scope out a bit, and maybe we could talk more grandly about where esports is really going, where Web three, crypto gaming, the metaverse, like where where is all that going in your eyes, and what's really your vision um, for the future? With a caveat of if there's something else that you think we should close on, it's more important than that. Um, by all means, take it take it where you want to take it here. Word. Um, so. Esports is still one of the fastest growing entertainment spaces, media spaces, like right now. It's it's the hottest commodity for influence building, uh, quote unquote, culture building and manifestation. Um, and uh, a lot of rich old people are parking a fuck ton of money into it. So I know for a fact folks are long esports. The problem, I think, is that there are folks that are trying to figure out like how to there are the folks that think saving esports is about standardizing how everything works in esports. I don't necessarily believe that that's true. Um, I think it's embracing the very chaotic nature of how games come and go, how games are developed who's who's responsible for kind of like the cultivation of uh of a particular competitive scene right and sometimes certain games are late bloomers right like you're not going to necessarily like and i love the fighting game community because they're the one of the greatest examples of what grassroots organizations can do with games that are definitely no longer in the main mainstream but have been proliferated since they've started right like people still play smash brothers melee in competition like to this day and this shit's been out for like two decades that's huge right like the problem is is that just like fps's mobas and all these other like gaming genres publishers still do dick all when it comes to actually supporting these grassroots environments they always try to keep it and say hey as long as it's just fun and you don't make any money off of us for real, then you can do it. Oh, I just disappeared, but I'm gonna keep going. Um, <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's wild how um, you've got uh, these, these really unique communities that are, you, you got these really unique communities that are, that are proliferating really awesome games that have now become cult classics games that like took a while for people to kind of like catch on to like lethal league for instance and there's a massive following right like you can build an incredible competitive scene with a hundred thousand people you could build an incredible you could build uh an insane uh you know like competitive scene with a million people right um but honestly you don't even need hundred thousand for a competitive scene to be viable um you could be it could be a lot smaller and fgc proves that time and time again that you don't necessarily need a large audience per se to make something good and special um you just need the right people who are passionate and so i think the long end of it is um the way i see esports in general is you're going to have your large brands turn into um, influence brand, youth brands, media brand companies, right? Where they acquire multiple types of entities from product verticals to fashion, um, to services, uh, to even lifestyle products and services um, and kind of facilitate like this, this way of living as a gamer, right? We're seeing this with 100 Thieves. We're seeing this with FaZe. We're seeing this with Fnatic. Um, that I don't think that trend is going to change for the big ones. The big ones already have massive investment. You know, um, at this point, the folks who started out, started up these organizations, no longer have majority ownership um, of these organizations. So, they, the folks who own most of it, look to these people as kind of like, hey, is our heart still beating? Like, do we still kind of bleed game? You know, do we still bleed culture? If so, cool. All right. All right, dude, go over there. Shut up. Do your thing. Go stream. 
we're going to take it from here type of thing, right? And then, but what's more interesting, I think, is what happens when you, when Web3 games start to prove that they are just as entertain, entertaining, when they provide just as much value, if not more, and they redistribute uh, or they distribute power and influence in a more equitable fashion, what happens to the publishers and the game developers that are anti-NFT or that are sort of like anti-monetization, right? It's going to change that landscape entirely. It's going to really put pressure on them to really say, well, our IPs aren't dying, but we are losing market share that is important to us with the type of titles that we normally carry. Because now we have this whole other class of uh, entertainment media that is competing with us. Um, and they have an opportunity to scale their IP and diversify it in much faster, more rapid and unique ways than we do because of the type of way that we run our businesses. Um, so, you know, what happens when Parallel produces, you know, uh, uh, an IP as strong as Riot and is able to develop something as dope as Arcane, uh, like the, the TV series, a fighter, a shooter, this, that, and the third, blah, 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 whatever, and maybe a fraction of the time with the same type of quality um, because, you know, the narrative is there, right? What happens to these really big entities, right? I, I think we start to see a lot of things kind of, uh, kind of fracture. Um, but most importantly, um, in order for this thing to work, we've got to be able to really sufficiently support, um, organizers, um, and give them the ability to actually make careers out of organizing events. There are so many people that do things out of passion, um, without compensation. It's sickening. Um, and, but being able to like facilitate them and hopefully that's what that's what we want stadium to do is to facilitate those, those folks that are like saying, dude, I want to build the next combo breaker. Okay. Well, yeah, like you could do that. And also here are games that are not going to give you shit for saying you want to do a $30,000 prize pool. <laughs> like there's so many arbitrary rules behind how people can organize events. It's, it's also very bad because they don't see how, uh, these these communities can pour into their much larger one they just want everybody to kind of be within their um within their main centralized uh events and tournaments and so it's very it's very limiting um and esports needs to be liberated it, it, it can't work like MB, like the nba it can't work like uh the premier league but it can take really good things from each of those um it can't be like formula one but it can take a piece of it um and esports can can dynamically grow into something, honestly, that's much safer than physical sport, um, and probably just as entertaining, if not more entertaining, um, and much more accessible for folks to play. So that's kind of like where I, where where I want it to go, um, and kind of where I see it going. I actually want to. I know some of those questions were rhetoric, like what happens when this group does something that's at the level of riot games and then they also have all this web three technology enabled and i think the answer is either the legacy publishers legacy games etc adapt or die and i am mm -hmm. very excited for that because there's there's this um this quote i forget exactly who it's from it, it might be warren buffett but it's something to the effect of criticized by practice and praised by name. And I think we're going to see that play out in really, really interesting ways because I'm very much looking forward to the moment where Web3 absolutely takes over and it's taking over because the product market fit is so much better. The customer, whether it be the gamer or the esports team or the streaming platform or the end consumer whoever it is is just suited so much better by the new technology i'm so so excited for that moment when the the scales start to tip towards the web3 side because i think it's just going to make the world a lot better place yeah i totally agree i totally agree and we've got um 
a lot of really cool uh, things I want to announce very soon about kind of like how we're moving into it. So very excited to, to try to be one of those groups that helps uh, put flags up, put banners and say, you know, Web3 is sophisticated. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's awesome. It's here to stay um, and to put faith in us, you know, so. I love it. Well, I know we're way over time, so I want to appreciate. I want to. Uh, uh, I do appreciate, and I want to just um, say thank you uh, and show my appreciation to you for all the time that you have shared thus far. Um, thank you very much for uh, for everything, dude. I appreciate you so much for for this. This is this is really fun. Anytime I get a chance to talk about like uh, esports, it, it it gets my gears going because it's just uh, it's just super fun, man. Um, but yeah. Love it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, can't help but get fired up when uh, when we start talking esports. I, f I feel the same way. Um, but again, I, I want to thank you so much for for coming on the show today. To everybody watching and listening, I want to thank you all. I love you all. Every single one of you. Y'all are what make uh, you know y'all y'all make this really um, y'all y'all make this happen because uh, you're the reason that I'm doing this. So thank you so much, uh, everybody watching and listening. Um, I've already, of course, tagged all of your different projects. Um, it's already in the title, already on Twitter and whatnot. So everybody go down the rabbit hole, of the multiple rabbit holes, and go follow and like and dive in and have some fun. And I think that everybody will be much better off for that. So again, thank you very much. And I will see you all on the next episode. Thank you all. This has been dope.